So here we are on uh, Christmas Sunday. Been trying to remember back to the last time we celebrated Christmas on a Sunday, and I just have no recollection of <laughs> what happened that day. But I, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, but it's a it's a blessing, I think, to be able to gather together today and to to actually have it be Christmas. I want to begin our uh, message today with a quote from C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis was one of those uh, thinkers who just, you know, he would, he would just see things in such a, a unique and, and so often in a very powerful way. And that was the case as well in his perspective on uh, the events that we celebrate today. So he, he, he said this, he said, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. So that's what we're celebrating today, the incarnation, uh, meaning God becoming flesh. He said, every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. It was the central event in the history of the earth, the very thing the whole story has been about. That's really uh, profound, if you think about it. You know, you think about the world, you think about um, the, the history of the nations and the various peoples, and you think about, you know, even today, all that's going on uh, all around the world. And, and yet the, the whole story is really wrapped up in this one event that happened on that day many, many centuries ago. And so the whole story of the world is about Christmas, which is summed up in the words of Jesus that we quoted a moment ago from John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That is the, that's the story. That's the, the primary story. That's what everything ultimately is all about. Now, I, I want to just sort of look um, briefly at some of the things that were told in the Matthew passage that we read, and then I want to come back around to the 16th verse of John chapter 3 and close things there. But uh, there, there are five great truths for us to consider on this Christmas morning. And the first of them is that in the birth of Christ, uh, the long-awaited um, event finally took place. Now, what many people fail to, to realize is that the birth of Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy. Many, many prophecies. I think some people mistakenly think that, you know, this baby was born and uh, somehow, you know, people decided, you know, later on through the, the stories and so that developed, they somehow decided, well, this baby's the Messiah, this baby's the Savior, without having any understanding that this was anticipated, this was expected, this was prophesied. And not just one prophecy, but several 
prophecies. And Matthew, in the verses that we read together, he alludes to one of those prophecies. But, but I want to say this as well. The prophecies, of course, were uh, given specifically to the nation of Israel because it would be through this nation that God was bringing the Savior into the world. They were the ones uh, from, from whom the Savior would come. They would be the ones to identify the Savior. And it would be from Israel that the salvation of the world would uh, result through, through this Savior that was to be born. But there was also a, a universal expectation of a Savior because the promise of a Savior predated the Jewish nation. It goes all the way back to the very beginning of time. So in all of the different cultures all around the world, there was a, an expectation. And in many ways, there still is an expectation among people. People even today are believing and, and hoping that at some point there's, there's going to be like a, uh, you know, some sort of a savior that's going to arise. This is just almost instilled in the hearts of each and every one of us. But the prophecies told us very specifically about this person who is to come. And if you notice here in the passage we read in Matthew, that after describing the, the angel visiting Joseph and instructing him on what he's to do as he finds out that Mary is pregnant, um, the, the angel uh, informs him that this is a supernatural thing, that that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. But then it says, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So prophecy. And as I said, this is just one prophecy concerning the birth of Christ. But if we just went over to the next chapter of Matthew, we would find that there's another prophecy that's mentioned here in the second chapter, because Jesus, having been born in Bethlehem, then there were these, uh, these kings or these, these wise men who came from the east. They had followed a star that had supernaturally guided them, and they ended up coming to Jerusalem. And they were asking the question, where, where is the king that has been born over the Jews? We've seen his star. And the, the reigning king at the time, Herod, uh, he called for the leaders, the, the religious leaders, the spiritual leaders, and he asked them the question, where is the, the Messiah to be born? And they then quoted from the prophet Micah. And this is what they said, verse six of chapter two, but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the point is, our first point is that the birth of Jesus was a fulfillment of prophecy. Many, many prophecies. There was a, an expectation that a savior would come into the world. And because the Jews had those, those prophecies, those specific prophecies contained in their scriptures, they were even expecting this event to happen, ironically, at the time that it did happen. And the, the irony in that is that many of them missed it 
And still to this very day, people ask the question, well, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, how come most of the Jews don't believe in him? Even though the, the religious leaders of the time expected him to come at that time. Well, the answer is that he was so radically different than they expected him to be. That was the basis for their rejecting him, but that's another story. So the first thing we see is that his birth was a result of prophecy. The second thing is that his birth was a miraculous birth. Now, Christians have always believed from the very beginning in the virgin birth of Christ. This is just one of the the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. But it is also one of those teachings that many people have struggled with and many people have uh, questioned or doubted or wondered, you know, is it really necessary to even believe this? And, and you can find people today in pulpits standing up preaching just like I am who would say, well, you know, the, the truth is that the, the virgin birth, it doesn't really matter if it happened or not. That's not really the main point. What the main point is that Jesus, you know, died and he rose again. And that's, that's what we really need to focus on. So this, this is a, a question that keeps coming up um, even in today's secular culture. As a matter of fact, this is the first question that Nicholas Kristof asked uh, Timothy Keller, the pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City in an interview that he conducted with him that appeared in the New York Times last Friday. So listen to what Nicholas Kristof said. He's a well-known um, writer with the Times. And this is, this is his question to Keller. He, he says, Tim, I deeply admire Jesus and his message, but I'm also skeptical of themes that have been integral to Christianity. Since this is the Christmas season, let's start with the virgin birth. Is that an essential belief? The earliest accounts of Jesus's life, like the Gospel of Mark and Paul's letter to the Galatians, don't even mention the virgin birth. So isn't there room for skepticism? So this is one of the main columnists for the New York Times asking this question last Friday. That's how relevant this question still is. And thank God for... Timothy Keller, who uh, went on to give him a brilliant answer to that question and several of the other questions that he asked. You might want to check that interview out. Uh, you can find it at the Times there online. Um, so I, I don't want to quote what Keller said just because it, I don't, it's too long. But what I want to do is I want to just answer that question. Is the virgin birth necessary? Yes, it is absolutely necessary because the reality is this. If there were no virgin birth, then Jesus had a human father and he is a mere man like the rest of us. And if he's a man like the rest of us, he's not able to save us. So you see, we can't just play fast and loose with these ideas. If there is no miraculous component in this, then what, what are we doing here? You see, it's the skeptical mind, it's the materialistic mind that refuses to believe that there is a miraculous who insists that, that you know, this, we, we don't need this. Uh, this doesn't need to be part of the story. We don't need the mythological part with the miracles and so forth. Just give us the teaching of Jesus. But you see, 
If we do away with the miracles, then the teaching of Jesus is just the opinion of another man. And we can take it or leave it, depending on whether we like it or not. But when you bring the miraculous into it, that takes that option away. If Jesus was born of a virgin, as the scripture here says that he was, then of course, we need to pay more attention to what he's saying because this is unique. There's nothing like this. And of course, it's through this virgin birth that we have a basis for identifying Jesus as both God and man. Again, if Jesus had a human father, then he's a human being just like the rest of us. But if his father was indeed God, then of course, there is that divine um, aspect there that we have to consider. And that is the teaching of the scripture. And that is certainly what Matthew is telling us here. Matthew is very clearly telling us that. Now, in that particular article, uh, Christoph was arguing, well, you know, the earliest gospel, Mark, doesn't contain the virgin birth. Well, first of all, it's a theory that Mark's gospel is the earliest. Nobody knows whether it really is or not. Eusebius, who wrote 250 years after the time of Christ, said Matthew was the first one to write his gospel. But even if Mark did write his gospel first and did include it, Matthew wrote it and he included it. Luke wrote it and he included it. How many times does it need to be included before people get the point that this really did happen? And so there is a miracle that has taken place here. And of course, this is what you would expect, right? We, we would expect, if there's a God, we would expect that he would do things miraculously. And that's indeed what he has done. And as we've already seen, it was a fulfillment of prophecy. But let's talk for a moment about the child. Because listen to what the angel said to Joseph regarding the child. First of all, that which is conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit, and she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the name was specific because the name actually uh, described his objective. You see, we don't oftentimes realize that when we are saying the name Jesus, the name Jesus means the Lord is the Savior. And that's why he was to be called Jesus, specifically told uh, by the angel that he was to be called Jesus for he shall save his people from their sin. But the prophecy in Isaiah that we've already considered also told us that he was God with us. So he is called Jesus because the Lord is the Savior. He is to be called as a title later in the future, Emmanuel, God with us. That has reference to the, the kingdom that is yet to come. But his very name is a conjunction between the name of God and salvation. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. The Lord is the Savior. So this child is the Lord. Now this is, of course, I, th I think most of us are familiar with this 
reality, but this again is the great doctrine of the incarnation. Now the incarnation, again, just for those of you that might not know the word, it means to become flesh. Now in the history of the church, there was a, a huge division. There was a huge split at a certain point and the church sort of broke off into the Eastern and the Western uh, sections. And there were many reasons why this dispute took place, but one of the things that they argued about was what was the sort of key point uh, in the life and, and work of Christ. And the Western church argued that the cross and the resurrection were the key points, and the Eastern church argued that the incarnation was the key point. Now, in some ways, if you think about it, it's kind of a dumb argument because you can't have a death and a resurrection unless you have an incarnation first. So the, the things really go together. They're, they're not things that you separate. But some have sort of, um, you know, overemphasized one uh, to the neglect of the other. And, you know, then it's, it's the, the reverse as well. So the truth is, these are all absolutely amazing things. But obviously, again, the incarnation is where everything started. Without an incarnation, you don't have anything beyond that. So the incarnation is uh, a very vital uh, and, and key teaching and unique teaching of the Christian faith that God, the Son, becomes a human being for the purpose, primarily, of death. See, God did not become a man primarily for the purpose of giving us an example of how to live or even primarily for the purpose of teaching us the truth. He became a man primarily so he could die. And Hebrews tells us that very thing, that he took upon himself flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death. And so this child that is born, this child is to be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. He is also yet to be in the future, Emmanuel, God with us. Again, you can't avoid the miraculous. You can't avoid the supernatural. This is all talking about miraculous stuff, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is what it is. And we, we don't apologize for that. We don't, I, I just feel sorry for any Christian who feels like they have to say, well, you know, I don't know the virgin birth, maybe. Well, we don't even really need that. One uh, well-known pastor recently um, made that sort of a comment to his congregation last week uh, saying that, well, it, you know, it, the virgin birth doesn't really matter. All I know is that there was a death and a resurrection, and that's what matters. Well, again, we don't want to give up <laughs> any of these things. We don't need to we can't give it up and retain a true picture of what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is and was. So the prophecies, the miracle, the, the child himself, God the Son, but then let's look at 
two other things, the giver and the gift. And transitioning from, from the Matthew passage to John 3.16, we come first of all to the giver. And so what do, what do we learn there? For God so loved the world. The giver in all of this is God the Father. He is the giver. And this is something that we need to understand about God. God is a giver. A lot of people see God as a taker. They think of God as wanting to take things from them. As a matter of fact, there would be many people today who would say, well, you know, God took this from me. Some cases it's a person, a loved one. God took my, my father or my mother when I was a child, or God took my child, or God took my best friend. And they, they see God primarily as a taker. Or they see God as wanting to take away the enjoyable things of life. Well, no, I don't, I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with your God because I, I don't want this to be taken from me. But that is the complete wrong picture of God. God is a giver. He's not a taker. He's the one who gives us life in all things. He's the one who's given us richly all things to enjoy. And he's the one who gave us the ultimate gift in giving us his son. So he is the giver. God, the father, is the giver. And his motive in giving, Jesus told us what his motive was. For God so loved the world that he gave. You know, there's a, a, re, a, a current uh, philosopher named Thomas Nagel. And he wrote recently extensively on his philosophy and um, a materialistic philosophy, but yet acknowledged in his writing that there was something appealing about the Christian message and something, you know, unrealistic about the material, the materialistic view of life. But at one point, he says something that's really astounding. And I can only attribute this to you know, some lack of understanding in the biblical picture of who God is. But he said, I don't just not believe in God. I don't want there to be a God. I, I just don't want there to be a God like the, the, the picture of God that, you know, he has in his mind. But to me, I think of anybody who doesn't want there to be a God like the God of the Bible, I think that they got to get their brain checked. Something's wrong. The God of the Bible is the giver. The God of the Bible is the one, as I've already said, who has given us all things. The God of the Bible is motivated in all that he's done by love for us, for others. Because not only is he the giver, but the gift that he is given is a gift that is beyond comprehension. Now, God is the creator, the Bible teaches. God is the owner, the sustainer, the possessor of all things. But think about what God didn't give and what he did give. Well, he didn't give us some secondhand thing that he could just dispense with easily and not worry about it because he had a billion more that he could access. He didn't give us even of the, the things that we would deem valuable and precious, but yet for him would be not the way we see them. Like silver and gold, for example, 
those are valuable. Those are, those are very precious to us. But the Bible tells us that we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. You see, for us, silver and gold are, are highly valuable. For God, that is relatively meaningless. But what did God give us? God gave us his one and only son. God gave us the one unique thing that he had. You see, everything else is, is God's by creation. He made it. He could, he could replicate it over and over and over again. But this one thing, his one and only son, one of a kind, unique, no, nothing compares. And this is what God gives. That, that is so astounding when we think of God in those terms. And, and then practically what that translates into for us is, as Jesus said, it's everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And when we're talking about everlasting life, we have to be clear that we're not talking simply about life that goes on endlessly, although that's part of it, but we're talking about a quality of life that is unattainable through any other means. You see, this is what God offers us. He offers us a life that cannot be found anywhere else. And the, the, one of the messages that Christmas is sending to all of us is that God is breaking in from the outside. He's bringing us a deliverance from the outside. He's giving us something from outside of ourselves that we cannot ever attain by ourselves. We cannot attain this quality of life. I can't attain it as an individual. We can't attain it collectively as, uh, you know, a, a, a body of people together. That, that's kind of the idea in the world, right? The idea in the world is that, you know, one day the whole world, everybody's going to get on the same page. Everybody's going to get together. Everybody's going to start thinking the same way. And then we're going to have an ideal world. It's never going to happen. It's impossible. And even if we put all of our collective hearts and minds together, we just have more confusion and corruption to deal with. The Christmas message is that something has come to us from the outside that's giving us something that we cannot attain ourselves. And that is this gift of everlasting life, which is a quality of life. Jesus described it as life more abundantly. It's a quality of life that can be found nowhere else. Nowhere else. No religion has it to offer. No philosophy has it to offer. It only is available through God and his gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what Christmas is. You know, for all of us, it's been, you know, busy season, obviously. And I was myself just thinking that I've been so busy, I haven't really had the time to sit down and just kind of think through some of the things that I would like to have been thinking through at this time of the year. And so yesterday I had a little bit of time. 
uh, to myself. And, and as I did, I just, I wanted to think about where I might have been had I never met Christ. And as I thought about that, it brought great joy to my heart that I did meet the Lord. Because as I thought about it and I, and I reflected back, you know, sometimes you can get so far away from something, you, you can't, you know, really even remember it that well. But, you know, I think it's good, especially with our past lives, to sometimes look back and really reflect on, on what it was like. Sometimes we get far away from it and we start getting nostalgic and we start thinking, oh, you know, it was kind of cool back then. And, you know, it wasn't really that bad. But then if you think a little bit harder, you're like, oh, oh, I forgot that part. Yes. Oh, that was bad. And oh, yeah, man, I'm glad. You know, there's a, there's a lot of things there. That's kind of where I was at yesterday. I was, I was just thinking through some of those things. And seriously, it just led me to a time of thanks and praise. Lord, thank you that I have been given this eternal life, this quality of life that is not available anywhere else, that you've done this. And this is Christmas. This is what Christmas is all about. It's about the gift of eternal life. And this gift comes to us through God's son. And it's because God loved that he gave. And of course, that's how we demonstrate our love, isn't it? You know, when you say you love somebody, that's, that's powerful. But when you back up that statement and you're giving something, especially something that's valuable to you, especially something that, that you cherish, but you're giving it, you know, that, that's, that sends a strong message. And so God's message to us is he loves us and he proved it by giving his son. And Jesus, his son, willingly came and went through that whole process of becoming a person. And, you know, again, we're, we're so far removed from the events and we have uh, sort of taken the, the Christmas season and, the, and the, the events surrounding the nativity and so forth. And we, we've kind of sanitized it and romanticized it, haven't we? And it's all so cute. You know, you've got the cute manger with the nice little animals there. And, you know, everybody just huddled around the baby Jesus and, and we've, we've made it a, a kind of a pretty and a nice thing. But it was anything but that. It was anything but that. Jesus was born in a stable. A stable with animals. I mean, that, you know, that's not really the ideal place to have your baby, is it, ladies? In a stable. That's not the ideal place. I mean, if you were born in a stable today, you probably wouldn't tell anybody about that. It's not anything to brag about, is it? Now, I don't know how many people have been born in a stable, but I'll tell you this. I know that no other king was born in a stable except the king of kings. And I don't know who else had a feeding trough for a crib. I mean, somebody else might have in history, but I'll tell you what, no other king in history had a feeding trough for a crib, but the king of kings did. And you see, this is, this is what he condescended to. This is what he came into. 
And we can't lose sight of that. He came into all the filth and all of those disgusting things and all those difficult things and challenging things and the whole story that we've taken and, and romanticized and put it kind of in our cultural context. If we just back up a little bit and look at the history and look at the way it really was, this was all very, very unpleasant and difficult and challenging for everybody involved. But it was the love of God, the Father, and the Son that led to those acts that have brought us the salvation, the eternal life that we cannot attain on our own or anywhere else. And it's that that we celebrate today. And so as we close today, I would just uh, encourage you that even here we are on Christmas Day, but, you know, as, as tomorrow comes around and we run into another, you know, probably busy week in preparation for the end of the year, let's not let these things slip away so easily, but let's continue to think on them, to meditate on them. Because, of course, these are things that we can think about all year long, right? And we ought to. And all of the other things that are connected to these great events, but then also, if you're with us today and maybe you've never made this personal, maybe you've, you've celebrated all these Christmases over the years, and maybe you've even gone to church services, but you've never received yourself the gift. You know, the Bible uses that, <clears throat> that term many times over. Jesus said it to the woman at the well. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was speaking to you, Jesus spoke to her about a gift. And later the apostles would write about the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that child born that day in that stable and lied in that feeding trough was none other than God who came into this world so that he could die and pay for our sins and rise from the dead and he ever lives now to come into our lives. And this is the personal aspect that we don't want to miss. Because if we miss this, we miss everything. We miss the, 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 the main story of the whole world and all of its history. It all comes down to this. And when it's all said and done, when it's all over and, uh, you know, history is past, there's only one thing that's going to matter. And that is simply this. Did you receive the gift that God gave, the gift of his son? And I pray that that would be true for each and every one of us, that we did indeed receive that gift. And if you haven't done that, don't wait another moment. You can do it now.